So last week, we looked at Isaiah chapter 9 in the first seven verses. And from that time, we, we, we spent exploring there uh, in that particular text and traversing uh, the book of Isaiah. It has become clear that God's plan for his people and for this world seemed to turn on a person, a king. In fact, the king. If you remember our time together last week, Isaiah said that this king would put an end to Israel's thick darkness so that there would be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. This king would usher in peace, putting an end to war. This king would bring fullness of joy to his people. This king would deliver his people from captivity. He would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of his kingdom, there would be no end. In addition to a king, Isaiah also builds his entire book around two other themes. A servant and a conqueror. So the, the book can really be divided into three sections. Three different messianic portraits, if you will. Three different figures. The king, the servant, and the anointed conqueror. So if we stand back from these portraits, we'll discover something. That each share the same features which is indicative of the fact that they are meant to be as different perspectives of one messianic person. Thus, we see the similarities, right? We're going to see each portrait is uh, revealed and endowed with the Spirit and the Word of God. We're also going to see that the concept of righteousness is within each of them. This week, we're going to examine the servant. By looking at what is a most famous and most important passage of Scripture in Isaiah chapter 52, starting at verse 13, and going on down through the end of the 53rd chapter. This is popularly known as the Song of the Suffering Servant. Now, we have the advantage of looking through this particular passage through gospel lenses, without which it would be extremely hard to understand the meaning of this prophecy, which is answered in Jesus, who teaches us that the three figures, the king, the servant, and the conqueror, are indeed the same person. Christ himself. So the song is divided into five stanzas. We're going to divide it into five different stanzas this morning. The first one, we're going to see that the servant is astonishing. The servant is astonishing. Secondly, we're going to see that we have rejected the servant. Thirdly, God has made the servant our substitute. Next, the servant submits himself to suffering and to God's will. The servant submits himself to suffering and to God's will. And lastly, we will see the satisfaction of the servant. We will see that the servant is satisfied. This song will answer the question that we will ask, which is, how can a holy and just God bless a sinful people? How can a holy and just God bless a sinful people? Would you pray with me this morning? Lord Jesus, as we come together in obedience to your command to gather in your name, we ask that you would pour out your grace upon us in a fresh way. That your spirit might act as a catalyst that urges us into a deeper knowledge of and love for you. God, make your name great this morning. Bless this, the preaching of your word. Amen. Starting with verse 13. 
And behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Verse 13 is actually going to function as a theme verse or a brief explanation of all that follows. The servant about whom we read will be successful at his task. He will be wise, which will lead unto his prosperity. He will be, you'll see the three things, high, lifted up, exalted. This is interesting because this combination of these three words is only used four times in all of Scripture. And guess what? All four times occur in the book of Isaiah. And all four times are only used to describe God himself. And so this reveals something very important to us about the servant. This servant will be unique. He will do something unique. And he will be uniquely exalted. This servant will be God and man. Somehow. The servant is astonishing. Next, in verse 14, we walk into the first of what's going to be two shocks. And they're going to be shocks because they contrast one another. And this is just kind of a weird turn, right? The servant is going to be high and lifted up. He's going to be God. As many as you were astonished, this is the same servant. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. We are told that the one is to, who is to be exalted is going to be greatly disfigured beyond recognition. His appearance would be ignominious. His humiliation would be complete. He would be appalling. Indeed, we see the second shock. Not only would it be appalling and astonishing, he would startle many nations. So shall he startle or make to tremble many nations. Some of your translations probably have the word sprinkle there. Um, the word can also be translated that way, but it's usually used of a priest. And in this particular context, I just don't think that it fits. So I go with startle or make to tremble to bring out the contrast between the servant's humiliation, servant's humiliation in verse 14 and his exaltation in verse 15. Because that's what's going to startle the kings. That's what's going to cause them to shut their mouths. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. The humiliated one will be the exalted one. This will be truly astonishing, truly startling. The astonishment that greeted the Savior's humiliation and that which greets his exaltation are brought out here. In other words, the thought of verse 13, him high and lifted up, is resumed. And the nations are going to be just as surprised at his greatness as they were at the smallness of his beginnings. The servant's supreme exaltation is elaborated by this picture of all the earth's rulers silent before him. The nations will find the humiliation of the deliverer shocking because they have never heard before that it is through the loss of all things that the Savior will conquer all things. This seems to be the sense that Paul uses when he quotes this verse in Romans 15, verse 21. He says, those who have never heard will be told of him, and they'll see. And those who have never heard will understand. The nations that have not heard this amazing truth before, and Paul wants to be, he will want to be, among the first that tell them. In the beginning, they'll be shocked at the depths to which the Savior falls. But in the end, they'll be overcome with gratitude that his sufferings were for them. 
the truth of the humiliation and the exaltation of Christ, of the servant, is amazing. It is indeed the gospel that we believe. And as followers of Christ, we should hope, as Paul did, to share it with those we encounter. Have you considered these things? Have you considered how you might order your life to accomplish the task of making his name great? Of adding to his exaltation by declaring this amazing truth? Have you thought about whom you will befriend? Where you will live? what you will pour your time and your energy and your resources into so that the name of Jesus might be made known, so that he might be high, lifted up, exalted, worshipped as God. How are you serving this astonishing Savior, this astonishing servant? Not only is the servant found to be astonishing or appalling, but his message will be difficult to believe. Indeed, the servant will be rejected. The servant will be rejected. 53, verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? We hear is most likely Israel who fails to recognize the arm of the Lord, that is the servant, that is Jesus Christ, when it is revealed to them. Isaiah is identifying himself with Israel and speaking on their behalf. The people of God who have heard this news and seen the revelation have refused to believe it. This should make sense to us, right? The message is extraordinary. It is indeed impossible to believe without a work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Because as we're told in Corinthians, the wisdom of God is folly to those that are perishing, but to those that are being saved, it is the very power of God. And it's through his wisdom that he saves us. The wisdom of the servant accomplishing his task. Only the Spirit Working through the word can give sight to the blind and melt the hardened heart. Without a work of God, we will see the servant as one to be rejected. For he grew up like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form of majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces... He was despised, and we esteemed him not. See what happens in this portion of the psalm. We, along with Israel, are implicated. We are guilty. We see no beauty or value in him. We esteem him not. We are guilty with Isaiah and with Israel. The song declares us guilty for not rightly valuing the servant. And instead, we vehemently reject him. We see him as nothing more than a knowing root in the garden that we might trip on as we walk about. Just a man. Just a carpenter's boy. A nobody. The words translated beauty and appearance here are actually used of Rachel in Genesis. Uh, She's lovely and beautiful in form. So, the servant is kind of the opposite of lovely and beautiful in form. He's not lovely and he's unpretty. Indeed, the rose of Sharon seems just a root in a garden full of flowers. We have yet to see his bloom. The point is, he is not one of the winners. He is one of the losers. And as axiomatic, it goes without saying that losers cannot deliver other losers. He is a man of pain and of sickness. What can he do for the rest of us? Nothing. 
He was a baby born in the back of a stable of a village inn. This would shake the Roman Empire. We esteemed him not. Luther says it. We esteemed him at nothing. We estimated his value at nothing. This reminded me of a a story I came across recently in the USA Today. It was an article of a gentleman that was, he bought a home and he was doing a, a renovation. Let me read you a portion of the article. While doing a renovation earlier this year in Elbow Lake, Minnesota, building contractor David Gonzalez found a comic book among newspapers used in the insulation walls that he was restoring in the house. It might be the most valuable piece of insulation ever. A copy of Action Comics number one. Nerds in the room probably just gasped a little bit. Action Comics number one. The 1938 comic book that debuted Superman. It sold for $175,000. $175,000 for a comic book that was thrown in with insulation. Likewise, we consider the servant valueless, useless, but a piece of insulation to be thrown into the wall. When in fact, he is of supreme value. Indeed, he is the true and better Superman. We esteemed him not. He was a baby to be born in the back stable of a village inn. This would shake the foundation of the Roman Empire. Indeed, the foundation of the cosmos. Have you recognized Jesus' supreme value? Have you recognized him as the treasure of your life? Do you desire him above all else? Or do you continue to esteem him not? To reject him? Israel couldn't see his value and neither could we. We thought him to be getting what he rightly deserved. After all, God helps those who help themselves. And he was helpless. That is until we realize his value, realize his purpose, that God has made the servant our substitute. God has made this servant our substitute. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. That weakness, that illness that made us think little of the servant. It's our weakness. It's our illness. The very things that made us think him of no account are the things for which we ought to honor him. Because it is for our sake that he would endure them. Part of the shock of this recognition is due uh, to the fact that in typical Near Eastern culture, the understanding of suffering was that a person gets what they deserve. It's called the retribution principle. So if you're good and you do what you're supposed to do, good things come your way, man. If you're bad, bad things come your way. Thus, if a person is smitten as the servant was, it's because he or she is a sinner and deserves the punishment of God. Yet this man was stricken because we are sinners. His rejection was our rejection. His wounds, our wounds. Luther again commented on this. He said, We all walk around with the nails of the cross in our pockets. He was crushed for us in our place. 
This stanza, verses 4 through 6, are the heartbeat of this passage. Indeed, the heartbeat of the very gospel. They clearly answer the question I asked you at the beginning. That This song answers, how can a holy God bless a sinful people? His wise servant. Here we see part of the great exchange of the cross. Jesus takes our sin upon himself and he dies the death that we deserve to die. Indeed, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The refusal of humanity to bow to the creator's rule and our insistence on drawing up our own moral codes that pander to our lusts are not shortcomings or mistakes. They are the stuff of death and of corruption. Unless someone can be found to stand in our place. They will see us impaled on the swords of our own making and broken on the racks of our own design. But someone has been found. Someone has taken on himself the results of our rebellion. We have been given the keys to the kingdom. Israel had been taught for hundreds of years that sin required a God-appointed substitute. The entire Old Testament sacrificial system pointed to the only way for fellowship with God to be restored. The death of the God-man. The death of the king, the servant, the conqueror. Jesus. The servant is slaughtered so that the sheep... You and I are saved. You know, sheep are not good creatures, right? They're notoriously single-minded. At the same time, they're unaware of their circumstances. Their minds are uh, only on the clump of grass that they munch on and not much else. Furthermore, when they are frightened, they have a tendency to bolt off in any direction. And as a result of these two tendencies, sheep are prone to get lost, prone to wander. We are sheep. Love what Dr. Dever says here. To be called a sheep is not a compliment. They are dumb and dirty. Yet as sheep we have gone astray. All of us. Human beings are not represented as some great proud animal. Confident and to be feared. Though I fear many religious teachers are telling their congregations just that. That that's how they should think of themselves. That's not the truth according to the Bible. And I don't care who is flattering you. They're lying to you. According to the Bible, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. We all need someone to save us from our sins. We are not proud, but humbled. If you do not know Jesus, you, like the rest of us, have sinned. You have acted wickedly, and you are responsible before God for your entire life, indeed, for your guilt. You can choose to bear God's punishment yourself. Or you can trust that someone has suffered for you, for your sins, paid the penalty for them. All us, like sheep, have gone astray. Indeed, we were lost in darkness, but the light of the world came to illumine our path and call us home. For he is the good shepherd, and he dies for the sheep. The way to God is through Christ alone. He has endured your punishment, my punishment, our punishment, so that we might live. The servant submitted himself to suffering in accord with the will of God. The servant submits himself to the will of God. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers silent, 
so he opened his mouth not. See, the servant too is compared with sheep. But when he is compared with sheep, it's their non-defensive, submissive nature that becomes the basis for comparison. Both he and we might be compared to sheep, but when we are, two different pictures emerge. In us, the negative characteristics are seen, whereas in him, the positive characteristics are seen. He shares the same nature with us, but in the servant, that nature is transformed. The servant not only dies the death that we should have died, but he lives the life that we should have lived, submitting himself perfectly to the will of the Father. I don't know why this reminds me of it, and it could be a poor illustration, but I'm going to share it with you anyway. Uh, For those of you that have kids, I don't know if it's this way with all of them, uh, recently I became a father, and so part of that is you, you kind of tell the baby when to eat and when to sleep. And um, Well, he tells you when he wants to eat and when he wants to sleep. But you can tell when your kid gets tired. Their eyes get really red, and they like do, they rub them. They do that rub thing. And from, in my case, he gets really, really fussy and cranky. And the only way we can get him to go to sleep is you got to get him in like this awkward standing position. And he likes to sit straight up and like kind of bounce him like this right here. And you have to do that for like 15 or 20 minutes. And he'll, he'll, his that little eyes will almost be shut. And then you'll think, man, I've got him. He's asleep. And then all of a sudden, whoo, he's wide awake. And he does this little stretch and he's crying. You got to start the whole process over again. He fights against it so hard. When in fact, it would really be for his good to just lean back and rest. And submit to my will. Father knows best. Father knows best. Likewise, our Heavenly Father knows best. And instead of rebelling against Him, we should lean back and rest in His embrace and submit to His will. Submit to Christ. To trust Him. Indeed, Father knows best. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? This verse is a little confusing, I'll admit. What's going on here is that Jesus is unjustly sentenced to death on false charges. And from a human vantage point, uh, he looks entirely cursed by God at this point. Especially when viewed against the fact that the servant was left without children. In a culture that... When you die childless, it means that your existence is utterly futile. That's why the Old Testament has this big emphasis on people that are barren, yet God provides for them children. Keep that in the back of your mind for later. This man would be left without children, and he would be killed for the transgressions of God's people. Verse 9, And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Now, Uh, When Jewish people interpreted this verse, they're really like, we have no idea. And without the gospel, I would have to say to you, I have no idea what's going on here. But it's, it's really accurate in what it depicts. You see, this man is rejected. He is cursed by God. He becomes a curse for us, in fact. And he's hung as a criminal on a cross. Yet, he wouldn't be buried like a criminal. No, Joseph of Arimathea would bury him in a rich man's tomb. I think we see here the beginning 
of the shift, of the humiliation of the servant, we're beginning to get a glimpse of his exaltation. High, lifted up, exalted. We're about to see the satisfaction of the servant. The satisfaction of the servant. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper his hand. The servant's oppression, his offering of himself up to death, was all a part of God's will and plan. God desired to crush him because God hates sin and it must be punished. You and I deserve punishment because we are evil and we have not lived a life in perfect obedience to God. Instead, we have sought to make ourselves gods and set up our own standards for good. Yet apart from Christ, we have earned nothing more than God's wrath. This is why Jesus took on flesh and became like one of us. To pour out his soul unto death as a guilt offering. In fact, to absorb the wrath of God that is rightly directed at us. Forgiveness is not free, friends. Grace is offered freely, but it was at great cost. I think of it this way. Uh, imagine that you loaned your car to your friend. Uh, I'm good friends with a guy named Matt Kim. He came here and preached once, so we're going to use him. Uh, imagine that I loan my vehicle to Matt, and he goes out on just a, a big day shopping at the mall or something. Uh, he likes to do that sort of thing. He's, he's a big girl. Um, and so he's shopping at the mall. He picked out some shoes or, or a nice tie or something. And then he's coming back to return my vehicle to me. And he comes flying into my driveway right over there at the parsonage at, you know, 30, 40 miles an hour. And so he, as he whips into the driveway, man, he clips a tree. Crunch. So what happens at this point is uh, I'm going to come out and kind of throw my hands up and go, what are you doing, bro? Like, come on. But secondly, uh, somebody's going to have to pay for that, right? car is all mangled. I can't simply go, I forgive you, friend. I mean, I can, but the car is still going to be mangled. See, what has to happen is he has to pay to get the car restored. I have to pay to have the car restored. Or the insurance company has to pay to have the car restored. But here's the point. Someone has to absorb the cost. It doesn't just go away. Someone has to absorb the cost. Likewise, Sin requires payment. It requires the death of the servant. He absorbs the cost on our behalf that our relationship with God might be restored, that we might have peace with God. The arm of the Lord, the servant, the prince of peace, the king of kings, pays the price for you. For our sake, he made him that knew no sin to become sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. The God-man, Jesus Christ, steps out of heaven into earth, takes on flesh to live the life we should have lived and die the death we should have died. He comes to do what Adam and all of us after him have failed to do. Trust and obey God perfectly. Stated differently, love God. So he takes God's righteous wrath on our behalf and gives to us his perfect righteousness. This is the great exchange. This is how we are made right with God. Through the servant's satisfaction of God's wrath. Absorbing the cost. And it's through his perfect obedience, which he credits to us as righteousness, that God views us as him and brings peace into our lives. Listen to this. 
We are now as good in our union with Jesus Christ as we ever will be. The Christian life is not about the Christian life is not about the trappings that we put on our life. It's about becoming in practice what God has declared us to be in Christ. Holy. It's about leaning into Jesus that we might learn how to love him better. How to have him at the very center of our being. So that he would permeate every aspect of our lives. So that everything we do, it might roll up into worship of him. So that we might be as before him in worship, in our eating, in our drinking, in our sleeping, in our studying. In whatever we do, as we are right now. As we are when we are in prayer. Because we use his good gifts and we roll them up into worship of him, the good gift giver. We're able to do this because God is satisfied by the servant. And indeed, note, the servant is satisfied by what the anguish of his soul has accomplished. Our salvation. Look at this. The servant's dead. He's humiliated. But look, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many. And makes intercession for the transgressors. Dead men do not see. Dead men do not gain satisfaction. Dead men do not divide the spoil. Dead men do not make intercession. The servant that suffered and died does. The God-man does. Jesus does. Because he is alive. The servant that died without children now adopts you and I as sons and daughters, his heirs, his true offspring. We stray as sheep, yet we return as children. The servant that died sees and is satisfied by what his death accomplished. The servant that died shares the spoil, the treasures that he has won with the many, the strong. The many and strong here, I think, are you and I. Those that have been justified, made right with God by their faith in him. He shares his winnings with the redeemed. That's us. The servant that died became one of us, and now he makes intercession for us, the transgressors. Saying as he did on the cross, Father, forgive them. The servant that died, he didn't stay dead. The grave couldn't hold him. He is alive and he is satisfied. Friends, the cross and the resurrection are Christianity. If you want to understand this servant, if you want to understand Christ, indeed, if you want to understand this life, you must grapple with the idea that Christians actually believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. And that's how he fulfills this prophecy. Because he is high, lifted up, exalted. He is God. And he has upheld both ends of the covenant. Perfect obedience. Perfect love. Perfect peace. This text is beautiful, not only because we are forgiven, but also because Jesus Christ is completely satisfied. He's not waiting to be satisfied based on what you or I do or how you act in this or that situation. The glorious news of the gospel is that he is satisfied. 
based upon what he has done on your behalf. The servant, the king, the conqueror, Jesus Christ came to suffer an ignominious death on the cross and to be highly exalted so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christmas marks the beginning of his march towards Calvary, towards victory, towards humiliation, and towards exaltation. Let us rejoice during this season that reminds us of our great joy, Jesus Christ. For unto us a child is born. Let us join the multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and singing. Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth.